Section 15 of A Lady's Visit to the Gold Digglings of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Lady's Visit to the Gold Diggings of Australia by Ellen Clacy. Section 15. Melbourne again. It was on Monday the 25th of October that for the second time I entered Melbourne. Not many weeks had elapsed since I quitted it for my adventurous trip to the diggings. Yet, in that short space of time, how many changes had taken place? The cloudy sky was exchanged for a brilliant sunshine, the chilling air for a truly tropical heat, the drizzling rain for clouds of thick-cutting dust, sometimes as thick as a London fog, which penetrated the most substantial veil and made our skin smart terribly. The streets, too, had undergone a wondrous transformation. Collins Street looked quite bright and cheerful, and was the fashionable promenade of those who had time or inclination for lounging. Parties of diggers were constantly starting or arriving. Trips to St Kilda and Brighton were daily taking place, and a coach was advertised to run to the diggings. I cannot quite realise the terrified passengers being driven through the Black Forest, but can picture their horror when ordered to bail up by a party of Australian turpins. In every window, milliners, baby linen warehouses, etc. included, was exhibited the usual advertisement of the gold buyer, namely, a heap of gold in the centre, on one side a pile of sovereigns, on the other banknotes. The most significant advertisement was one I saw in a window in Collins Street. In the middle was a skull perforated by a bullet, which lay at a little distance, as if coolly examining or speculating on the mischief it had done. On one side of the skull was a revolver, and on the other a quantity of nuggets. Above all was the emphatic inscription, Beware in time. This rather uncomfortable-looking tableau signified, in a speaking a manner as symbols can, that the unfortunate skull had once belonged to some more unfortunate lucky digger, who, not having had the sense to sell his gold to the proprietor of this attractive window, had kept his nuggets in his pocket, thereby tempting some robbers, significantly personified by the revolver, to shoot him and steal the gold. Nowhere could you turn your eye without meeting thirty thousand ounces wanted immediately, highest price given. Ten thousand ounces wanted to consign per dash, extra price given to immediate sellers, etc., Outwardly it seemed a city of gold, yet hundreds were half perishing for want of food, with no place of shelter beneath which to lay their heads. Many families of freshly arrived immigrants, wife, children and all, slept out in the open air. Infants were born upon the wharves with no helping hand near to support the wretched mother in her misery. How greatly the last few weeks had enlarged Melbourne! Cities of tents encompassed this on all sides, though, as I said before, the trifling comfort of a canvas roof above them was denied to the poorest of the poor, unless a weekly tax were paid. But I must return to ourselves. Our first business the next morning was to find for our little Jessie some permanent home, for all our movements were so uncertain. I myself, thinking of a return to the old country, that it was considered advisable to obtain for her some better friends than a set of volatile, though good-hearted young fellows, not the most suitable protection for a young girl, 
even in so lax a place as the colonies. We never thought of letting her return to England, for there the life of a female who has her own livelihood to earn is one of badly paid labour, entailing constant privation and often great misery, if not worse. I have before said that William had relatives in Melbourne, and to them we determined to entrust her. Mrs. R. was a kind-hearted and most exemplary woman, and having a very young family of her own, was well pleased at such an acquisition as the thoughtful, industrious little Jessie. Each of our party contributed a small portion of their golden earnings to form a fund for a future day, which I doubt not will be increased by our little friend's industry, long before she needs it. Here let us leave her, trusting that her future life may be as happy as her many excellent qualities deserve, and hoping that her severest trials have already passed over her. Our next care was to obtain our gold from the escort office, to which the receipts given in Bendigo had to be handed in, and after very little delay the precious packets were restored to their respective owners. The following is a facsimile of the tickets printed on parchment attached to each parcel, of which a duplicate, printed on common paper, is given to the depositor. Bendigo Creek, number 2772, date 8th of October, 1852. Name, Mr. A. Quantity, 60 ounces, 10 hundredweights. Consigned to self. The trifling charge for all this trouble and responsibility is sixpence an ounce. The business satisfactorily arranged, the next was to dispose of it. Some was converted into money and sold for sixty-nine shillings an ounce, and the remainder was consigned to England, where being very pure and above standard it realised four pounds an ounce. A great difference, that. We next paid Richard a visit, who, though surprised, was well pleased to see us again. He declared his resolution of returning to England as soon as possible. Our party fixed their journey to the ovens to take place in three weeks. William determined to remain in town, which I think showed wisdom on his part, as his health was not equal to roughing it in the bush, and this was a much more formidable trip than the last, on account of length and being much less frequented. Meanwhile, we enjoyed the fine weather and our present companionship as much as possible, while taking little trips here, there and everywhere. The one I most enjoyed was a sail in the bay. The captain of the vessel in which we left England was still detained in Port Phillip for want of hands, the case of hundreds, and offered to give us a sail and a dinner on board afterwards. We soon made up a large party and enjoyed it exceedingly. The day was lovely. We walked down to Leodette's beach, a distance of nearly three miles, and were soon calmly skimming over the waters. We passed St Kilda and Brighton, and gained an excellent view of the innumerable vessels then lying useless and half deserted in the bay. It was a sad, though a pretty sight. There were fine East Indiamen, immigrant ships, American clippers, steamers, traders, foreign and English, whalers, etc., waiting there only through want of seamen. In the cool of the evening our gallant host rode us back to the beach. Since our first landing, tents and stores had been erected in great numbers, and little Adelaide was grown wonderfully. I think I have never mentioned the quantity of frogs that abound in Australia. This particular evening I remarked them more than usual, 
and without the least exaggeration their croaking resembled the number of mills in motion. I know nothing to which I can more appropriately liken the noise that resounded along the swampy portions of the road from the beach to Melbourne. Much has been said of the climate of Australia, and many are the afflicting statements thereon. The following table contains all the information, personal and otherwise, which I have been enabled to collect. January and February, generally the hottest months, average of the vomiter, 78 in the shade, thunderstorms and colonial showers of rain occasionally visit us. March, fine genial weather, average temperature, 73 in the shade. April, weather more uncertain, mosquitoes depart, average temperature, 70 in the shade. May, fine till towards the latter part of the month, when sometimes the rainy season commences. Average temperature in the shade, 64. June, rainy and much cooler. Temperature at an average of 58 in the shade. July, coldest month in the year. Midwinter in the colonies, average temperature 53. Ice and snow may be seen inland. August, very rainy. Average temperature 58 in the shade. September, windy, stormy month. Weather getting warmer. Average temperature 63 in the shade. October, the presence of the mosquito. A sure proof that the weather is permanently warm. Average temperature in the shade 66. November and December. Tropically warm. Locusts, mosquitoes and unnumbered creeping things swarm both in bush and in town. Towards the end of December the creeks commence to dry up and the earth looks parched for want of rain. No yule log needed on Christmas Day. Thermometer as high as 97 in the shade. Average 75. The principal trees in Australia are the gum, stringy bark, manna tree, wild cherry, so-called, iron bark, she-oak, peppermint, acacia and the mimosa, which last, however, should be more properly called a shrub. These and others, like the Indian melaleucas, are remarkable for the cajaput oil contained in their leaves and in the gums which exude from their stems, and in this point of view alone, considering their boundless number, their value can hardly be overestimated. The gum of some of the acacias will bear comparison with gum arabic. Their bark and timber are likewise useful, and when the gold fever has subsided will become valuable as exports. Wildflowers there are in abundance, and some exquisite specimens of ferns. For the benefit of those better skilled in botany than myself, I give the following list of Dr. Muller's indigenous plants of Victoria. Coria ochralenca and Fabium asteriscophorum, both with the medicinal properties of the buco bush. Eurybia rhodocata, E. rugosa, E. adnophila, E. astrotristia, Thambacus gaudichidiana, Prostanthia herasuta, Pinelia axiflora, powerful surrogate of the mezzarin shrub, Ossidia decumbacus, Asteristo asperifolia, Patasonia aspera, Grevillea repens, Dalakayana, etc. The geranium, fuchsia, rhododendron, and almost all varieties of the cacti have been taken to the colonies, 
and flourish well in the open air all year round, growing much more luxuriantly than in England. The vineyards must some day form a considerable source of employment and profit to the colonists. The wine made in Australia is very good. The vines are cultivated in the same manner as in France. In the neighbourhood of Sydney, oranges and peaches are grown out in the open air. Apples and other fruits flourish well in Van Diemen's land. All these fruits are not indigenous to Australia. The only articles of food natural there are the kangaroos, emus, opossums, and other denizens of the forest, a few snakes, some roots, and a worm about the length and thickness of a finger, which is abundant in all parts of the colonies, and is taken out of the cavities, or from under the bark of the trees. It is a great favourite with the blacks, as it can be procured when no other food is obtainable. I have before made mention of the bush and scrub. There is a great dissimilarity between the two. The former resembles a forest, with none or very little underwood. The scrub, on the contrary, is always underwood, of about six to twenty feet high, and only here and there a few trees are seen. To be lost in either bush or scrub is a common thing. If on horseback, the best way is to give the rein to your four-footed companion, an instinct will most probably enable him to extricate you. If on foot, ascend if possible a rise of ground, and notice any fall in the country. Here most likely is a creek, and once beside that you are pretty sure of coming to a station. If this fails, you must just bush it for the night, and resume your search next morning, trusting to an occasional cooey to help you out of your difficulty. The scenery of Australia partakes of all characters. Sometimes miles of swamp remind one of the Lincolnshire fens. At other times it assumes quite a park-like appearance, though the effect is greatly injured by the want of freshness about the foliage, which always looks of a dirty, dingy green. The native trees in Australia never shed their leaves, never have that exquisite young tint which makes an English spring in the country so delicious. Their faded look always reminded me of those unfortunate trees imprisoned for so many months beneath the Crystal Palace. The mountains in Australia are high and bold in outline, and the snow-capped Alps on the boundaries of New South Wales are not unlike their European namesakes. The highest tops are from six to 7,000 feet above the level of the sea. The country around Ballarat is more in the North American style, and when the creek is full, it is a fine sight, greatly resembling, I have heard, one of the smaller rivers in Canada. In fact, the scenery round Ballarat is said to approach more to Upper Canada than any in the colony. The rocks, although not high, are in places very bold and romantic, and in the wet season there are several waterfalls in the neighbourhood. Eels are very plentiful in Victoria, and are peculiar to this district, being seldom, if ever, found in any other part of the known continent. Old writers on Australia have stated that eels are unknown in this part of the world, which, since this colony has been settled in, have been found to be erroneous. As of Darwin, the Yarriara and their tributaries abound with them, some weighing five or six pounds. A few days after our return from the diggings, we breakfasted off a dish of stewed eels caught by a friend. The smallest weighed about a pound and a half, the largest about three pounds. 
They were caught three miles from Melbourne in the Saltwater Creek. A small kind of fish like the lamprey, another similar to the gudgeon, and also one of a rather larger kind, the size of a roach, here called white herrings, but not at all resembling that fish, are found. Pike are also very numerous. Crabs and lobsters are not known here, but in the salt-water creeks near the sea we have crawfish. Of course, parrots, cockatoos and shitch-like abound in the bush, to the horror of the small gardeners and cultivators, as what they do not eat they ruin by destroying their young shoots. Kangaroos are extremely numerous in the scrub. They are the size of a large greyhound and of a mouse colour. The natives call them kangaroo. The tail is of great length. There are several varieties of them. The largest is the great kangaroo, of a greyish-brown colour, generally four or five feet high, and a tail three. Some kangaroos are nearly white, while others resemble the hare in colour. Pugs, or young kangaroos, are plentiful about the marshy grounds, and so also are the opossum and kangaroo rat. The latter is not a rat, properly speaking, but approaches the squirrel tribe. It is a Lilliputian kangaroo, the size of our native wood squirrel and larger, only grey or reddish grey. It can leap six or eight feet easily, and is excellent eating. The native dog is of all colours. It has the head and brush of a fox, with the body and legs of a dog. It is a cowardly animal, and will run away from you like mad. It is a great enemy of the kangaroo rat, and a torment to the squatter. For a native dog has a great penchant for mutton, and will kill thirty or forty sheep in the course of an hour. A species of mockingbird which inhabits the bush is a ludicrous creature. It imitates everything, and makes many a camping party imagine there is a man near them, when they hear it whistle or hearty laugh. This bird is nicknamed the jackass, and its loud ha-ha-ha is heard every morning at dawn, echoing through the woods and serving the purpose of a boots by calling the sleepy traveller in good time to get his breakfast and pursue his journey. The bats here are very large. Insects, fleas, etc., are as plentiful as it is possible to be, and the ants, of which there are several kinds, are a perfect nuisance. The largest are called by the old colonists bulldogs, and formidable creatures they are, luckily not very common, about an inch and a half long, black or rusty black, with a red tail. They bite like a little crab. Ants of an inch long are quite common. They do not, like the English ones, run scared away at the sight of a human being, not a bit of it. Australian ants have more pluck, and will turn and face you. Nay, more, should you retreat, they will run after you with all the impudence imaginable. Often, when my organ of destructiveness has tempted me slightly to disturb with the end of my parasol one of the many anthills on the way from Melbourne to Richmond, I have been obliged, as soon as they discovered the perpetrator of the attack, to take to my heels and run away as if for my life. Centipedes and triantelopes, colonial for tarantula, are very common, and although not exactly fatal, are very dangerous if not attended to. The deaf adder is the most formidable varmint in Australia. There are two varieties. It is generally about two feet long, 
the bite is fatal. The deaf adder never moves unless it is touched, hence its name. I do not think it has the power of twisting or twirling like the ordinary snake or adder, and it is very slow in its movements. There are several species of snakes. Some of them are extremely venomous and grow to a large size, as long as ten feet. The black snake is the most venomous of any. Its bite is fatal within a few hours. But let us leave these wilder subjects and return to Melbourne. The state of society in the town had not improved much during my absence. On the public road from Melbourne to St Kilda, fifteen men were robbed in one afternoon, and tied to trees within sights of one another. In Melbourne itself the same want of security prevailed, and concerts, lectures, etc., were always advertised to take place when there was a full moon, the only nights anyone unarmed dared venture out after dusk. The following extract from the Argus gives a fair specimen of Melbourne order. We are led to these remarks, referring to a tirade against the government, by an occurrence which took place last week in Queen Street, the whole detail of which is peculiarly illustrative of the very creditable state of things to which, under the happy auspices of a Latrobe dynasty, we are rapidly descending. A ruffian robs a man in a public-house in broad daylight. He is pursued by a constable and taken. On the way to the watch-house a mob collects. The police are attacked, pistols are pointed, bludgeons and axe-handles are brought out of the adjacent houses, all still in broad daylight, and in a busy street, and distributed amongst the crowd. Loud cries inciting attack are curled. A scuffle ensues, the police are beaten, the prisoner is rescued, the crowd separates, and a man is left dead upon the ground. The body is taken into a public-house, an inquest is held, the deceased is recognised as a drunkard, the jury is assured that a post-mortem examination is quite unnecessary, and the man is buried, after a verdict is brought in of died by the visitation of God. The said visitation of God having in this instance assumed the somewhat peculiar form of a fractured skull. This is a true picture of Melbourne, but whether the Argus is justified in reproaching the La Trobe dynasty with it is quite another matter. In pages like this, anything resembling an argument on the transportation question would be sadly out of place. To avoid thinking or hearing it was impossible, for during my second stay in Melbourne it was a never-failing subject of conversation. In Victoria, which is only forty-eight hours' journey from Van Diemen's land, I have seen the bad results of the mingling of so many transports and ticket-of-leave men amongst the free population. On the other hand, I have heard from many good authorities of the substantial benefits conferred on Sydney and New South Wales by convict labour. It is difficult to reconcile these two statements, and it is an apple of discord in the colonies. Whilst in Victoria I met with a great variety of immigrants, and I was much struck by the great success that seems to have attended on almost all those who came out under the auspices of Mrs. Chisholm. No one in England can fully appreciate the benefits her unwearied exertions have conferred upon the colonies. I have met many of the matrons of her ships, and not only do they themselves seem to have made their way in the world, but the young females who were under their care during the voyage appear to have done equally well. 
Perhaps one way of accounting for this is the fact that a great many of those going out by the Chisholm Society are from Scotland, the inhabitants of which country are particularly fortunate in their colonies, their industry, frugality and canniness being the very qualities to make a fortune there. Sidney Herbert's needlewoman bear a bad name, and the worst recommendation a young girl applying for a situation can give is to say she came out in that manner. Not because the colonists look down on any one coming out by the assistance of others, but because it is imagined her female associates on the voyage cannot have been such to have improved her morality, even if she were good for anything before. Much is said and written in England about the scarcity of females in Australia, and the many good offers waiting acceptance of those who have the courage to travel so far. But the colonial bachelors, who are so ready to get married and so very easy in their choice of wife, are generally those least calculated, in spite of their wealth, to make a respectable girl happy, whilst the better class of squatters and diggers, if they do not return home to get married, which is often the case, are not satisfied with any one, however pretty, for a wife, unless her manners are cultivated and her principles correct. To wander through Melbourne and its environs, no one would imagine that females were as one to four of the male population, for bonnets and parasols everywhere outnumber the wider wakes. This is occasioned by the absence of so many of the lords of creation in pursuit of what they value, many of them at least, more than all the women in the world. Nuggets. The wives just left in town to deplore their husbands' infatuation are termed grass widows, a mining expression. And now two of the three weeks of our party's stay in Melbourne has expired, during which time a change, purely personal, has made my brother's protection no longer needed by me. My wedding trip was to be to England, and the marriage was to take place, and myself and Carrasposo to leave Australia before my brother departed for the oven's diggings. The sea, a fine East Indianman, then lying in the bay, was bound for London. We were to be on board by the 12th of November. This, of course, gave me plenty to do, and my last morning but one in Melbourne was dedicated to that favourite feminine occupation, which, however, I detest. I mean shopping. This being accomplished to my great dissatisfaction, for all I bought could have been obtained, at a better description, for half the price in England. I was prepared to return home by way of Collins Street, when my name in familiar accents made me suddenly pause. I instantly recognised the lady who addressed me as one of the English governesses in a finishing school where three years of my girlhood were passed. Julia Dash was a great favourite amongst us, no one could have done otherwise than admire the ability and good humour with which she fulfilled her many arduous duties. Perhaps of all miserable positions for a well-educated and refined young person to be placed in, that of little girl's teacher in a ladies' school is the worst. Her subsequent history I learnt as we walked together to my present abode. Her mother had a cousin in Sydney, who, being old and unmarried, wrote to her, promising to settle all his property, which was considered large, upon her daughter and herself, his only living relatives, providing they came out to the colonies to live with him till his death. A sum of money to defray the expenses of the voyage was enclosed, 
this piece of unexpected good news was received with pleasure, and the invitation gladly accepted. They sailed for Sydney. On arriving there they found that some speculation, in which he was greatly involved, had failed, and the old man had taken a loss so greatly to heart that he died only five months after having dispatched the letter to his English relatives. Poor Julia was placed in a most painful position. In England she had scarcely been able to support her invalid mother by her own excursions, but in a strange country and without friends these difficulties seemed increased. Her first act was to look over the advertising columns of the paper, and her eye caught one sight of which seemed exactly to suit her. It was, wanted, a governess to take entire charge of a little girl, the daughter of a widower, and also an elderly lady to superintend the domestic arrangement of the same family during the continual absence of the master at another station. Julia wrote immediately and was accepted. In the occasional visits that her pupil's father paid to his little girl, he could not fail to be struck by the sweet disposition and many other good quantities of her governess, and it ended by his making her his wife. I felt at liberty to congratulate her, for she looked the picture of happiness. I saw her again next day, when she showed me the advertisement which had been the means of such a change in her circumstances. The day before my departure was a painful one, so many farewells to be taken of dear friends whom I should never meet again. On Friday the 15th of November, my brother and all our party, Richard and Jessie included, accompanied us to the pier at Williamstown, to which we were conveyed by a steamer. For this we paid five shillings apiece, and the same for each separate box or parcel, and twelve shillings to a man carting our luggage down to the Melbourne Wharf, a distance of not a mile. On landing at the pier, how greatly was I astonished to meet Harriet and her husband. Her modest desires were gratified, and they had realised sufficient capital at the diggings to enable them to settle most comfortably near Adelaide. In hurried words she told me this, for their boat was already alongside the pier, waiting to take them to their ship. Hardly had they departed than a boat arrived from our vessel to convey us to it. Sad adieus were spoken, and we were rowed away. That evening a pilot came on board, anchors were weighed, we left the bay, and I saw Melbourne no more. End of section 15